Welcome back to the Big Picture podcast series. This week, we're joined by Kate Bell from TUC. Ready to start. Um, I'm here tonight on behalf of the business faculty at the university. I'm delighted to be the host of tonight's Big Picture seminar and specifically to uh, welcome Kate Bell uh, tonight uh, with us. Kate uh, uh, is Head of Rights, International Social and Economic Department at TUC, and she will be talking tonight about the role of trade unions in the pandemic and their impact on working lives. Um, and uh, uh, in a role that the department uh, specifically she's working on, uh, leads uh, a number of initiatives on boosting employment rights, promoting social and economic policies, that generally benefit uh, working people and builds international solidarity. Um, but there's a lot more in uh, Kate's career because before uh, joining TUC, actually Kate worked as head of policy and public affairs for local authority. She also worked for the Labour Party, for charities Child Poverty Action Group and Gingerbread. She's also a member of the Low Pay Commission and representing workers. So uh, building on all this experience, I'm sure she's going to be delivering to us a very exciting and uh, interesting uh, topics. Um, I don't know if there are any specific uh, guidance in terms of slides that you will see for the management discussion today, um, but uh, I mean you know that uh, we will receive uh, questions through the uh, chat, okay, so you feel free uh, to post your question there. At the end, uh, Kate's going to be talking for roughly 30-35 minutes, we will see. Um, we will then uh, be moderating the questions, so we'll be asking questions on your behalf. So I think uh, without uh, further ado now, probably I should uh, uh, leave the floor to Kate. Kate, uh, over to you and very much looking forward to hearing your talk. Thank you. Grazie Riccardo, um, thank you very much for having me, it's really nice to be here and um, I'm sorry I can't see you directly, um, but thanks so much for coming to listen to me talk. Um, I'm going to attempt to share my screen, hopefully, um, and um, I've got some slides to show you, um, and hopefully you can see that. I will say now that my internet is struggling a little bit but hopefully it will um, work through this and perhaps one of the panelists can message me if they're having real problems and I'll take the slides away. Um, so thanks again for having me. Um, as Ricardo said um, my name's Kate Bell, I'm the head of a policy team at the Trade Union Congress um, and what I'm going to talk about today is kind of the subject of my working life which is of course work. Um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about work before the pandemic. Um, I'm going to talk about whether the pandemic has changed everything, basically. I think one of the things I've really noticed um, during this period, and maybe it's because of the job I do, but there's an awful lot of discussion about, you know, has the pandemic changed working life forever? Um, are we all going to be working at home um, forever? I'm certainly working at home at the moment, but not the case for very many people. Um, is the intrusion of technology into our lives in other ways, perhaps increased surveillance, going to continue? Um, will we finally recognise key workers um, or is what we're going to see a huge loss of jobs so I'm going to try and touch on some of those issues today um, and then I'm going to conclude by saying what the trade union movement thinks needs to happen to actually make working life better because that's what we want to see um, come out of this experience which has been so difficult for so many people. Um, 
So just to tell you about a little bit about um, the TUC, my employer. So the Trades Union Congress, and um, normally I say we bring together 48 trade unions representing over 5 million um, working people. Um, but sometimes when I say this, I get some kind of when I can actually see the people I'm talking to, I get some blank looks basically about, okay, but what is a trade union? So um, for anyone who doesn't know what a trade union is, um, they're associations of working people. Um, people can join a trade union in their workplace, it means they can come together and they can collectively bargain um, for terms and conditions and collectively bargaining. Collective bargaining means joining together with your other colleagues and presenting collectively, for example, something to your employer on pay would be the most typical thing and your pay and your employer deciding to debate with that with you to come to an agreement with you be binding about the type of pay that should be uh, in workplace and on different grades. Um, so we as the Trade Union Congress are kind of union of unions. Um, we represent trade unions views um, to government. We try and um, advocate for greater collective bargaining and we try and encourage people to join unions too. Obviously, what we spend our time thinking about um, life in the UK, and you know, we do that both by looking at kind of the best statistics of all, reading best research, but also hearing from um, those five million members about what's going on in their working lives, actual experience of work. Um, so if you can think kind of back to before March last year, um, I'm going to say a little bit about um, the kind of working life in the UK was like before the pandemic. And I should say that although I do cover international issues in the UK, I have focused the present international issues in my job. I have focused this presentation on the UK. Um, of course, if questions or maybe we can pick in the discussion about how the UK compares to around the world and how some of the issues we are facing are um, global as well as local. So these two charts are kind of the picture which you know sum up basically what we thought was happening in the UK um, over the last decade really um, and we tend to kind of our kind of discussion of what was going on in the world of work in the UK after the financial crash in the night. Um, so if you look at the chart on the left, that's basically showing you kind of the employment rate in the UK over that time. The yellow line is the employment rate, um, the blue line is the unemployment, the, sorry, their levels, not rates, so their number of thousands of people. Um, and you can basically see we saw this big rise and fall in um, employment after the financial crash back in 2008. And then we actually saw what was a very rapid rise in employment and kind of around the time of um, the 2015 election and kind of subsequently you will have heard conservative politicians kind of boasting about the UK's employment miracle, boasting about kind of a million new jobs being put onto the labour market um, and boasting about the kind of positive effects that would have on our labour market and seeing that you know more people in work would make people better off um, and help tackle some of the real inequalities that we were seeing at work. Well I think it's certainly the case that more people were in work but unfortunately that wasn't delivering many of the things we'd normally expect that higher employment to see. So the chart on the right is showing you um, real wages so that's wages once you've taken in 
um, inflation into account. And what that basically shows you is this massive wage squeeze that the UK experienced um, during that time when employment was rising and really after the financial crash. So this is um, figures going up to the end of 2019, and they show that real wages, so wages once the cost of living has been taken into account, still haven't recovered to where they were in 2008. And if you look at the part of the chart, which is before 2008, you can see what you'd normally expect wages to do is grow. We normally expect people to be getting better off over time. The last decade was one in which we saw wages absolutely squeezed, and that was a kind of real key feature of working life um, before the pandemic, I think. Um, two more things to kind of highlight. Um, about working life specifically in the UK. And that was that although we'd seen employment rising pretty quickly, um, low pay and insecurity were still very common. So the chart on the left is taken from Eurostat, who produced statistics across Europe. Um, and you can see that kind of, I want to point to it, but I realise nobody's going to be able to see me point to the chart. Um, but you can see that kind of long bar at the bottom of the chart is the UK. And that's the share of low wage earners as a proportion of employment employees. The data is a little bit old, it's from 2018, but you can see that we have far more people here on low pay in the UK than many other EU countries, much higher than the EU average and um, much higher than some kind of advanced economies. So, you know, you've got Sweden there with a very low proportion of people um, on low pay, but we're also doing much worse on this metric than say Denmark, France or Spain as well. So low pay a real problem in the UK and um, I think probably something that most of you would have experienced perhaps um, in your own lives and kind of noted um, if you work in the UK or if you work um, uh, or you know if you've got experience of having worked in other European countries too. And um, the other big trend we've seen was um, an increase in the insecurity of work. So the TUC estimates that there were about um, 3.6 million people in some form of insecure work. Um, and this again is data from before the pandemic. And what we mean by insecure work is the kind of work where you don't know when you're going to be working um, necessarily from one day to the next. You don't know when your hours are and you often miss out on some key paying conditions. So you might be missing out on sick pay. You might be missing out on maternity pay. Um, and you may be um, missing out on other forms of uh, pay and leave. Um, my video has just stopped. Can I just check that you can still hear me okay? Yes, Kate, we can hear you. We just turned it off because it kept cutting out. Uh, okay, sorry about that. Um, well, great. Look at the slides and I'll keep talking. Um, so, <laughs> thanks. So, I think I was just saying that um, about one in 10 people were in some form of insecure work in the UK um, at the time when my internet connection was becoming insecure as well. Um, the other kind of key feature that we'd highlight about working life in the UK um, before the pandemic, but as I'll go on to say, during the pandemic as well, was big structural inequalities. Um, so this slide is a bit busy, apologies for that, but it just talks through some of the evidence we've got of how those structural inequalities were playing out in the workplace. So um, pretty shockingly, more than half of women had experienced some form of sexual harassment at work, 
as had just under seven in 10, nearly 70% of LGBT plus workers. And within those groups, black and minority ethnic workers were much more likely to experience um, sexual harassment. Um, big experience of bullying and harassment. So a third of black workers saying that they've been bullied, abused or experienced racial discrimination by their employer. Um, similar proportions of LGBT workers reporting that type of discrimination. Um, and you know, that was by managers, by clients or possibly by patients. Um, we saw big pay gaps reflecting that structural discrimination. So the gender pay gap, that's the difference in hourly pay between men and women at 17.17% and for the difference between disabled workers and other workers at 20% and there's a BME pay gap too. And then we also see gaps in the experience of employment. So huge um, employment gap for disabled people, um, significantly less likely to be able to find work. So you've got this kind of experience where, you know, the top line story of work in the UK before the pandemic was of, okay, we've got this high employment rate, but many of the things that we hope high employment is going to deliver for us, whether that's better pay or more equality in the labour market, more security at work, not really coming through. So what's happened in the pandemic? Has everything changed? So I'm going to look at this kind of on a few sort of different levels. And um, I guess the main thing that everybody is talking about is, are we all going to be working from home um, forever? And I think, you know, obviously there has been a significant shift in um, where people are working. So this chart on the um, left is showing you um, people who were working um, remotely, that's the yellow line in the middle, um, people who were on the furlough scheme, so on the job retention scheme, which is paying 80% of people's wages who cannot be in work. Um, and then that kind of grey line on the top is showing you people who are actually working in their normal place of work. And this looks like it's a kind of flat line in terms of who's been working from um, home during this period. But this is because this data starts in June and when you look before the pandemic, so kind of around March, we saw around 5% of people regularly working from home and now we've got around 30% of people regularly working from home. So that's a really, really significant shift. But I think we do need to be a little bit careful before we decide that this is a shift that's going to be permanent. We've got a really, really wide variation in who is working from home. And that shows you um, on the chart on the left, that's what that's showing you. So again, the blue bars are people who are on have been fellowed. So that, that means the government is basically paying their wages. Um, the yellow bars show, uh, show you who are working remotely. And then those kind of gray mouse colored bars are showing you who's working at their normal place of work. And what you can see is just how different the experience of work is depending on what industry you work in. So one figure I've picked out is that um, just 16% of IT workers are working at their normal place of work. So most of them working from home, whereas 72% of those in manufacturing are still going out to work every day. And I think one of the things we might see from this pandemic is new, new divides in the experience of work, perhaps by industry, perhaps by job type, perhaps by kind of your power within the organization. Another couple of kind of warning notes about 
is what we're going to see in the future kind of increased flexibility for everybody. So the Office for National Statistics is surveying businesses on a kind of two weekly basis. And one of the really interesting things I think to come out of that is although about 30% of workers are working from home, there's now only about 14% of businesses saying they're going to use increased home working in the future. And I think that figure is much lower than some of the kind of commentary you're seeing, which says, you know, offices won't exist anymore in the future. Everyone's going to work from home. Another sign of kind of perhaps everything isn't quite as flexible as we might have thought it would be. Um, we have had this big change with the furlough scheme put in place, which enables you to, as I said, not be at work, but receive 80% of your wages. But in some signs that employers haven't necessarily kind of embraced full flexibility, um, seven in 10 requests for furlough for working mums who you know, might have needed that flexibility to be um, delivering homeschooling at this time have been turned down. That's some um, polling from a survey the TUC undertook recently. So I think, you know, there's a possibility for more flexibility in the future, but it's by no means secure. Um, what about the rise of technology at work? Um, obviously, my technology is slightly failing this afternoon, but I think the other kind of thing we've heard an awful lot about has been, um, you know, are we going to see kind of new technological developments? Are we all going to be managed by an algorithm rather than by a human in the future? Um, so just on the left, you've got kind of just one of the many, many examples of kind of media stories there's been around new patents. Um, this is Microsoft suggesting that they're going to record and score meetings on body language. Um, we're also hearing a lot about self um, kind of healthcare monitoring system. So one recently a wristband which allows you to send a message to your employer about your mood in that particular moment. I think it allows you to press a blue button for if you're feeling okay and a red button for if you're feeling not okay. Um, we've heard a lot about kind of monitoring of people working at home, so keystroke monitoring um, to measure if people are actually typing, um, monitoring of the number of emails you send a day. And also we've already seen some forms of monitoring um, of, for example, your emotion in your voice when you're talking, um, call center workers being monitored on that kind of thing. And I think one of the things we've seen um, during the pandemic is again, a greater discussion of those new forms of technology being used in the workplace. But again, I think room for a bit of kind of caution on this one. The figures on the right of the slide are um, some findings from a survey we did um, in the summer about um, how many people are seeing kind of technology replacing human management. So there are this definitely happening. Um, it's definitely an increasing trend and it's one we're worried about, but the numbers are still reasonably low. So you've got kind of 14% saying technology is being used for work allocation, 14% um, for shabling, 15% um, of people, I think this is being made. So I've had the experience when you've called a call centre for being asked to rate somebody's call um, subsequently, but still relatively low numbers, I think, are seeing this kind of widespread adoption of technology as a form of management in the workplace. Um, 
Another trend I've seen talked about around work kind of quite a lot during the pandemic is recognising who the essential workers really are um, in society. We've obviously kind of, I think many people have had the insight of, you know, how much they've relied on retail workers, how much they've relied on health workers, how much they've relied on postal workers, among many, many other professions who often were going out to work when other people were able to stay at home and often literally putting their lives on the line. And we have seen those kind of key worker professions also pretty tragically experiencing kind of increased mortality. So we had clap for carers um, as one example of this. And we've heard quite a lot um, from the government around the language of kind of build back better. And the idea that after this pandemic, we're gonna have a new settlement and what, that's gonna be one that recognises the contribution that these workers have made to getting us through the pandemic um, and hopefully kind of, you know, allows them to have better pay and conditions. But I think we're still um, a long way um, away from that yet. So um, in the budget, um, uh, I think I've now got confused. There used to be a budget in autumn and um, a statement in spring, and now they've swapped to a statement. It's a budget in spring and a statement in autumn. But in the Chancellor's autumn statement, um, he froze public sector pay for most workers, um, which I think was a pretty significant kind of kick in the teeth to many of the people who'd been working during that period. Um, we've had increasing reports of um, kind of customers not respecting um, key workers so this is some research from the shop workers union Asdor and pretty awfully three quarters of people working in shops have said that the abuse they experience um, mostly from customers has actually got worse during the pandemic with less perhaps of being worried about um, uh, not being able to get the food you want, um, being passed on to workers in those conditions. And the other trend we've seen is actually an increase in the insecurity experienced by many of the people in key worker roles. So I think many people at the kind of beginning of the pandemic were quite shocked to find out that um, care workers, for example, were working on zero hours contracts. So that's a contract where you're not guaranteed any hours regularly a week and you often receive your shifts at a very short notice. Um, many retail workers also working on those contracts. But actually what we've seen during this period is the number of people on zero hours contracts rise. So the 2020 figures in that bar chart there are um, figures um, from August of this year. And the groups which saw the biggest rises in zero hours contracts were exactly those groups who've been designated as key workers. So shop workers and retail workers, the people who've got us through the pandemic, really not seeing their terms and conditions improve yet. And of course, we've still got no decent sick pay. Um, just here I've put the chart of um, the level of statutory sick pay, which is the sick pay you're entitled to in Britain compared to other countries. Um, so those are the orange bars and right at the right of that chart, you can see where Britain lies. Um, we had one of the lowest levels of sick pay going into the pandemic and we've still got one of the lowest levels of sick pay. Um, this is in OECD countries, so rich nations, basically. Um, and one of the most shocking things for us going through the pandemic has been how much we've seen that sick pay is important but how little the government has done about it. Um, we know that two million people still don't earn enough to qualify for sick pay and we had some research out this morning just showing that the self-isolation payment that government has put in place to try and deal with that isn't reaching the people who need it. 
And then, of course, we've got this big threat coming down the line of unemployment. Um, this is showing you a kind of chart of unemployment um, over a long period. So um, from the 70s, basically, to now. And you can see these kind of big recessions during the 80s. Um, you can see unemployment going up again, kind of you're getting towards the peaks at the right hand side of the chart when we get to kind of 2008, 2009. And then you can see these very sharp rises in um, unemployment. And this chart is showing you the changes in unemployment. It's not showing you levels. Um, around kind of the autumn this year. And that's a point when we saw that um, the furlough scheme was likely to end, it's subsequently been extended. But I think one of our biggest threats, perhaps a major threat to working life in the UK is that threat that government won't keep the support in place that people need to keep their jobs. And that the kind of shakeout of companies, the real issues that many businesses have faced will lead to a big rise in unemployment. And when we see unemployment rising, it also becomes much harder to improve the quality of work at the same time. So I think we've seen kind of the potential for change, but the change hasn't been delivered yet. And there's some big threats there too. So I want to kind of finish by talking a bit about what trade unions want to see to address some of these challenges and how rather than kind of some of those kind of continued insecurity, continued low pay, continued experience of structural discrimination, we can actually build back better as the Prime Minister has promised and actually see a better future of work. Um, so the first thing I just was talking about the kind of threat of unemployment is to protect and create jobs for the future. Um, and protecting jobs has got to be the first part of that. So trade unions were quite instrumental in arguing for that furlough scheme, as I said, paying 80% of the wages of workers who can't work because of the pandemic. At the moment, that's due to finish in April, and we think it's really vital until, that it's extended until at least the end of the year. And at least while the kind of current restrictions, which means business can't operate, are in place. But we also think there is an absolutely massive opportunity to kind of think about the jobs we want in the future right now um, and for government to invest in them and create them. We know that one of the major challenges we face as a country, as a planet, is um, meeting the challenge of climate change and getting to that net zero target. And it's kind of a happy coincidence that the steps we need to meet that target are actually steps which will create jobs. They should be creating jobs in new forms of energy, new forms of renewable energy. Um, they should be creating jobs in retrofitting homes. Um, they should be creating jobs in making sure that we can produce things in ways that use less carbon. And they should be creating jobs in um, the electrification of transport. But we know government needs to invest now to actually make that happen. So we've set out a plan to invest um, around 85 billion pounds in creating 1.2 million jobs, which would help us deliver that change to net zero and also create the jobs we desperately need around the country. The other place we think there's a huge potential to create jobs and jobs that should be good quality jobs is in the public sector. Over the last decade one of the things we saw and one of the reasons for um, that kind of big pay squeeze was we abolished lots of public sector jobs during a decade of austerity um, and we think now is the time to reverse that. Of course that's so we can deliver better public services but it's also so we can deliver better jobs and I think most people have seen the kind of real crisis that the care sector has been in during this period, a sector that's been massively underinvested in and that ends up with workers kind of bearing the brunt of that underinvestment. So one in four workers in the care sector at the moment are on zero hours contracts and there's a huge recruitment crisis. 
But this should be a sector that's growing. It should be a sector that's delivering decent jobs right across the country. And we think if government was prepared to invest in the sector, that's what it could be doing. Next step is to upgrade the worker protections that um, we know people need and deserve. And we'd start by fixing sick pay. Um, again, we think the kind of failure of action on sick pay during this pandemic has been shocking. Um, and we set out plans, we set out plans this time last year, basically, to make sure everyone can access sick pay. So extend it to the two million people who currently miss out and increase the level to a real living wage. Um, we've been calling for a ban on zero hours contracts for a really long time, but if we want to find a way to reward our key workers, this is certainly one of the places we'd start. And then key workers, we think, desperately need a pay rise. In other countries, in France, for example, you've seen a pay rise for health workers. Here we've seen a public sector pay freeze um, and a slowdown in the increases in the national minimum wage that people deserve. So the trade union movement, the TUC, is campaigning for a pay rise for key workers. And that's a vital part of actually delivering a better future of work after the pandemic. I set out some of the evidence we've got on structural discrimination that still kind of scars our labour market um, and scars people's lives and we've set out a kind of clear plan for what government could do to start to address some of that structural inequality so that includes kind of a cross-departmental action plan on racial inequality it includes better reporting so we've called for mandatory um, reporting of the ethnicity pay gap. Um, government did actually introduce a requirement to report on gender pay gaps a couple of years ago and for government and for businesses to actually have to set out a plan on what they're doing to address those pay gaps. Um, and government also needs to be much more transparent about what it itself is doing. So government um, has a duty under the public sector equality duty um, to report what it's doing to promote equality. At the moment, it's very unclear how it's doing that. So we've called for um, government to publish equality impact assessments on its response to the coronavirus pandemic. And then most importantly, we think is giving workers a real voice at work. And here I want to talk about the role of trade unions. We know that if you're on your own in the workplace, if you're an individual, it can be very, very difficult to speak out against an employer who you don't think is treating you properly. You're obviously kind of the balance of power is completely unequal. Um, every individual worker needs um, their job more than their employer needs that individual workers. And that's why the power of collective action and joining together in trade unions is so important. Um, particularly at this point, we're hearing, you know, many low paid workers worried about speaking out about health and safety, worried about speaking out around kind of unfair terms and conditions, worried out about speaking out against discrimination for the fear of reprisals from their worker, from their employer. And as kind of the threat of unemployment grows, without a kind of countervailing pushback, that fear is going to grow too. But we know that collective action can deliver results. So I've just put um, a few kind of examples of that up here on this slide. So um, Morrison's um, big supermarket just announced it's going to be the first UK supermarket to pay at least £10 an hour um, to all key workers. And that was a deal negotiated by the shop workers union, Asdor. Um, Example below that is um, from the union GMB, um, they've just negotiated actual full sick pay, so not just the statutory level, but a contractual level um, for 15,000 care workers working across the Four Seasons care home chain, and a really, really important victory there for those workers. Um, 
I've got um, an example up at the top around um, a Rolls-Royce factory which was due to close um, and the negotiations that the union's been undertaking there um, to push back against that closure. They've um, negotiated a new role for the site, including training, and they've actually negotiated shorter working time and a move towards a four day week as part of that, which I think is a really interesting example of how unions are kind of adapting what they're offering to employers in order to protect jobs. And lastly, and one from PCS, that's a public sector union, um, predominantly public sector union, winning um, a big bonus payment for low paid outsourced workers who'd been working at the business department um, and who'd worked throughout the coronavirus pandemic, obviously often putting themselves at risk. Um, this is an example of where I'm seeing some of the important role of unions. So over in the States, and this is me also trying to end on a kind of slightly positive note, um, we've seen, you know, a real shift in the political climate. And so this is um, President Biden's plan explicitly saying that he wants to strengthen worker organising, collective bargaining and unions and a nice um, a quote saying everything that defines what it means to live a good life and know you can take care of your family, the 40 hour work week, paid leave, healthcare protections, a voice in your workplace is because of workers who organised unions and fought for worker protections. So that's what the TUC, that's what unions are aiming to do now. We're aiming to tackle the problems that we saw in work well before the pandemic. We're aiming to tackle the greater problems that we've seen exposed by the pandemic. And we're hoping to be able to deliver a better working life for everybody. Thank you for listening to the Big Picture Podcast series. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Subscribe to never miss an episode.